Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Doable Discipleship. I am your co-host, Brandon Robinson, and this is the show designed to deepen your faith in God, or as we like to say, the show that helps you grow. Today, we're gonna get into chapter one of Genesis. We're in, this is our story, running the audio from that small group curriculum. We're getting into chapter one today. We're gonna get into a lot of fun stuff. Again, we're looking at it through three lenses, primarily, what does this say about God? What does this say about us? What does this say about the world we live in? Before we get into the audio, I wanna make one quick note, two quick notes actually. First is, this small group study is best when you go through it with a small group. So we highly, again, we highly, highly recommend you going through it with your small group to get the full experience, you get the companion guide that goes with it. It's really great. Spend a lot of time working on it. We really think it'd be really beneficial and helpful. You can find that on saddleback.com slash watch. It's up on our watch page right now on demand for you. And also, hey, if you're not in a small group and you're interested and you want to to explore further, to dig into a little bit more, you can join a small group at saddleback.com slash small groups. Um, so again, we highly recommend that as well. All right, without further ado, we're going to get into the audio now. Imagine this picture, everything is darkness. Chaos churns like a storm over the unformed earth. Obscurity rests over the surface of the deep. Like a pitch black lump of clay waiting for the wheel to begin spinning, it waits. And then from the grand throne room, it is uttered, let there be light. And these words echo to the furthest corners of all space and time. Brilliant rays of light burst into every crevice of reality, like flipping a switch in the most colossal cathedral you've ever seen. And suddenly, you can see just how grand and vast and extravagant the cosmos is. This breathtaking image is how God's grand work of creation begins. Now, we hope you caught a glimpse of this picture as you read through Genesis 1. What a chock-full, awe-inspiring chapter, right? It's hard to believe that such beautiful and true and poetic words were written almost 40 centuries ago. It's amazing to think about how very different the world was then, and yet how perfectly these words still speak into our perspectives today. So let's take some time, lean into this incredible story. And as we do, we'll go back to the three questions we introduced last week. What does this story tell us about God? What does this story tell us about how this world works? What does this story tell us about who we are? And as we do, I want you to keep holding this story in tension with the stories you tell yourself, because the stories we tell shape who we are. Mm -hmm. 
so let's see what this first chapter of Genesis 1 has to reveal about who God is. The story begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing this tells us about God is that God is cosmic and in control. There were a lot of other stories at the time of the ancient Hebrews that talked about how the world was made. These stories, be it Egyptian, Assyrian, or Mesopotamian, were about God engaged in sex and war, where jealousy, anger, and violence and mistakes ended up making the world into what it is. In contrast, the Hebrew story, the biblical story, begins with a God fully in control, who exists before the beginning with no competitor, above all, creating freely. Genesis 1 is an amazing picture of the grandness of God. He doesn't even need to lift a finger. He just speaks and the universe spins into existence. Now you might say, yep, I totally believe God's in control. But think about it. Our actions show what we actually believe. Every time we worry, we are telling ourselves a different story than this one. When we worry, we are telling ourselves that the circumstances or challenges that face us are too big, that maybe evil will win out, that maybe God just isn't powerful enough to be above this one. Look, you may be scared about some potential pain or troubles in the weeks ahead. That's okay. We know God didn't promise us a comfortable life, but when worry grasps at our soul, when all we do is stew and fear about things beyond our control, it's us telling ourselves a story that's different than the true story of the Bible. The story here is that God created all things in his power. This means that God desires for the world and for us will ultimately win out. Nothing is too much or too powerful for him. Nothing. What does this mean for me? Next time I'm facing a challenge, remember that God is bigger than my problems. No matter how big it seems, he can handle it. If you believe that, you'll be surprised at how your circumstances won't control you. Let's continue on. The first chapter then gets into God's work of creation. With each then God said comes a new part of creation. Now, if you read the story closely, a really interesting theme starts to emerge. Notice these verses. Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Let the water teem with living creatures, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. Let us make humanity in our image so that they may rule. Notice the theme. This leads to the next point. What God creates, God empowers. While God sometimes does it himself, often God commissions the land or sea or plants or animals to take part in his work. This is ultimate delegation. How interesting that it's the land that produces animals. How amazing that the sun and moon are like God's appointed governors over day and night. How intriguing that God creates seed-bearing plants and seed-bearing humans to reproduce themselves according to their kinds. You see, what this story tells us is some very good news about our God. God doesn't want robots. And even more inspiring and humbling, God doesn't want to do it all by himself. He right away begins to include his creation in his big work. It's like he packs all of creation full of life and potential and independent will, then sets it loose to create. Basically put, God is not a micromanager. He trusts, he empowers, he involves us. Do you get this? God empowers what he creates, and he created you. God wants to set me loose because I'm empowered to be a part of his work. This may be a thought you haven't had about God. Maybe you've not thought about how following God means being a part of his mission. It's easy to think that being a Christian means following a very narrow, very two-dimensional, very, for being honest, boring life of just avoiding bad stuff. Yes, God wants us to avoid sinful and selfish behaviors, 
but mostly because they keep us chained down, disconnected from the vibrant and adventurous life God has for us. Or maybe the idea of being empowered to do God's will can make you feel like you've missed your chance. You might feel paralyzed by the weight of, man, I hope I'm following God's will for me. I hope I married the right person. I hope I took the right job. I hope I had the amount of kids God wanted me to have. I've talked with a lot of people that feel this weight. My words to them are this. Sometimes God has a very specific thing he wants you to do. But most of the time, God's will is a lot broader than you may think. Though there are some clearly poor choices, it's not like a game show where God's will is behind door number one, two, or three. And you have to guess. And if you guess wrong, your life will forever be off track. No, no. It's very likely that if your decision helps you get involved in God's grand work to bring good and order and beauty to this world, it's in God's will. But scripture shows us that he empowers us to make many of these decisions ourselves. Following this God does not mean constrictive and colorless. It means expansive and exponential. Now that we've looked at what this story tells us about God, let's see what light it sheds on how this world works. Again, what we believe about how this world works defines so much of how we go about our days. Let's see what God's story says and see what it can teach us about our own beliefs. So let's go back to the beginning. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's important to remember that these first two chapters of Genesis are what the world looks like before our rebellion against God. This is all before sin enters into God's creation. So what's the deal here? If there's no sin, why is stuff still formless and void or confused and unused? Well, I'm sure people have written thousand page textbooks on this, but suffice it to say, this tells us something really interesting about the world. And it's that the world tends towards chaos. Notice, if there's no sin yet, chaos in and of itself is not bad. It's just that order, clarity, and intentionality is better. What this part of the story tells us is that it takes work to bring order into this world. It doesn't just happen naturally, even when things are perfect. Now, we know this in theory, right? This German physicist, Rudolf Clausius, helped come up with the second law of thermodynamics, which argues that entropy is a natural law. Entropy, basically, describes the reality that nature slowly but consistently moves towards disorder. Things have a natural tendency to slowly fall apart. And as a side note, it seems like Rudolph experienced a little entropy with that facial hair, right? But we don't need old Professor Rudy to tell us this, right? We experience it. The second you take your focus off of something, things seem to go haywire, don't they? The second you stop the habit of tending to your backyard, it transforms from a nicely kept lawn into an untamed and wild jungle, right? The second you stop a diet and exercise routine, you begin putting on pounds. The second you let go of your steering wheel, it lurches to the left. Well, my car just really needs alignment, but you know the feeling. It's like you're constantly pushing a boulder up a hill, and as soon as you stop, it just rolls back down. This reality is true of this world in general and in your life too, right? The second you stop taking every thought captive, your mind and your heart 
can become a jungle. Now I get this, but what does this mean for me and how I live? Well, I need to remember that the chaos around me is not always a result of me doing something wrong, right? Sometimes it's just what the world is like. So when my life feels upside down, it's good to remember that chaos is not always my fault. Let me say that again. If you feel like life is just getting away from you, that your kids are naturally high energy tornadoes of disaster, right? That relationships are naturally hard and that your checking count is naturally always a struggle. That's not your fault or their fault. That's just a reality of this world. Don't let it bring anger at yourself or at others. Now, of course, you can make selfish or sinful decisions that can add to this chaos. But even if you lived perfectly, this struggle would still be the case. Now, the good news is chaos doesn't need to have the last voice. Though chaos is not always your fault, you can do something about it. And this story here in Genesis gives us the answer. From verse 2 onward, this chapter shows God cleaning things up. God separates land from sea, sky from land, light from dark, day from night. Right In this chapter, we see God doing the work, overcoming the natural disorder of the world and bringing clarity. See, this is because God knows that the world works best when it's put in order. It takes work. It takes intentionality. But as you can see, what was formless and void, confused and unused, begins to get cleaned up. God begins to clarify things and to put things to use, and the result is fruitfulness and, and multiplication. God brings order to the world here in Genesis 1 because when the world is brought into order, it works best. And this is why God has given us disciplines or practices, habits like reading this story, the Bible, every day, habits like prayer, habits like tithing and generosity, habits like practicing community with others. These habits that actually make up what we focus on in class 201 shape our way of living and thinking in a way that help keep the order from descending into chaos. So what should I do about it? Well, I should build habits into my life that bring order. Now, these disciplines have helped Jesus followers for thousands of years bring some order and some clarity to their world. Think about it like mowing your lawn, right? You can miss a day or two without things falling apart, but if you forget about it, you'll wake up one day and your yard will be a total disaster. Now, going further, while these practices help keep chaos in check, they also help you bear fruit. Think about a grapevine. If you just let it go wild, you may get a few grapes from, from it from when the weather works for you. But if you build a structure and a lattice, you set up some irrigation and you keep the vine ordered, that same amount of land is going to yield 20 to 30 times the amount of grapes. God wants us to bear fruit. So what structures and habits do you need to build into your life to hold back the chaos and also to bring some greater fruitfulness to your efforts?
And this leads us into the final question. What does this first chapter of Genesis tell us about who we are as people, who, who I am? Remember, we're constantly telling ourselves stories about who we are. These stories may puff you up or they may constantly tear you down. But let's take some time with this story. Let it shape how we view ourselves. Genesis 1 is one continually building story. With each day that passes, God's creation becomes more beautiful and complete, as if God is upping the ante with each let there be. This all leads up to the final addition to creation on day six, when God says, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. So God created humankind in his own image. The conclusion of this sixth day, though each day ends with it was good, after humanity is created, the Bible says in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And this leads us to the first point this story tells us about who we are as people. And it's that we are the pinnacle of creation. While many other creation stories of, of the ancient Hebrews, they, they present humans as worthless annoyances to the gods. Things that just happened out of the chaos of divine wars or sexual acts among the gods. But this biblical story, it stands out as very, very different. This story says about you and about me that we are the most beautiful, amazing, creative, created thing in the universe. See, the sky was made in day two. The ocean in all of its vastness and beauty, day three. Jungles and forests grabbing nutrients from the soil and bursting with life, day three. Stars thousands of times larger than our sun, using nuclear fusion to turn hydrogen into energy to power the cosmos. That's day four. Soaring eagles, colorful toucans, the great gray whale, an octopus that can change its skin to reflect its surroundings. That's day five. All of it beautiful. All of it majestic. And the Bible says that all of it was God's warm-up that led up to you. Now, again, unlike the other stories that floated around the time of the ancient Hebrews, and unlike the stories we tell ourselves as a society today, no single human being is an accident. You are not an accident. God was very intentional in making you and me and all of us Though we may tell stories of accidental parents, Genesis 1 tells us that there are no accidental children. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's masterpiece, poemas, a word that directly translates to the word poem. God delights in you, not just when you work hard or produce or achieve, but simply in your existence. Like a beautiful piece of artwork, your value is not in what you do, but simply that you are. Believe it or not, you are the masterpiece of the master craftsman. 
Now, some of you need to hear this as good news about you. You need to look in the mirror and see beauty and value. But some of you need to hear this also as challenging news. This good news also means that no other human being is worthless either. No other human is an accident or just a production unit, right? It's impossible to believe this story of Genesis 1 and at the same time dehumanize any other human, regardless of their background or political religious beliefs or how they look or how much money they have or don't have or where they were born, right? The very fingerprint of God is on every single person you're with right now. Every person that drives past you on the freeway, every person you work with. Now, whether you need to hear this as good news right now, or this is challenging news, or both, I know I will try to allow God's story to shape the stories I'm currently telling myself every time I look in the mirror or at someone else. And this leads us to point two from this story, that we as people, we carry God's image and mission. Let's look again at these few incredible sentences in verse 26 and 27. Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all of the creatures that move on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there have been a lot of books written and lectures presented about what exactly it means that we carry the image of God. Is it that we have moral accountability? Is it that, that we have an ability to reason? Is it our eternal soul? Let's just put all that aside real quick and just look at God's word closely. What does it mean to carry God's image? Well, verse 26 again says, let us make humankind in our image so they may rule. Hmm. Strange, right? Carrying God's image means ruling, but ruling what and, and ruling how? Well, think about it this way. Images or symbols are used to cause you to think about the reality they represent. But if I show you this symbol, what do you picture in your mind? Maybe online bank account numbers or cash in a wallet, whole economies, maybe your job. Exactly, right? All this from a simple S with a line through it. All that comes to mind. Now, images represent larger realities just like this. So let's look at this from the perspective of the original culture. The Bible talks about us being the image of God. See, the same word for image was used back in this day for statues and symbols that kings and rulers would erect in places that they ruled. I remember being in a town outside of Venice, seeing a big pillar right there in the town square with an eagle on it. And wherever this eagle was, it was a sign that the Roman emperor ruled, and with it all the cultural, political, and economic values of the Roman Empire. No matter how far away, when that eagle was in the town square, it meant that the Roman emperor ruled there. Now, think in modern times, we have something similar, right? Think of an American flag, right? Or statues of Lenin, 
or the Apple logo, right? These are symbols that show who is in charge here, what values or viewpoints. Now, see, what this story is telling us is that we are these images. Not for a country or a company, but for God, right? Wherever we are, we are meant to be symbols that God is in charge here. But unlike a statue or a logo, right, we don't just symbolize God's rule. The Bible tells us that we are actually meant to rule the way God would. Now, rule is a word we don't use a lot, so what does this look like? Well, if you want to know what God's kingdom looks like, what it looks like when we rule the way God would, look at Jesus' teachings, right? It, it looks like loving our neighbors and our enemies or fighting for justice with love. It looks like welcoming in the outsider and seeking the healing of the broken. It looks like sacrificing your own comforts to seek the good of those around you. Right? It looks like cultivating beauty. It looks like walking a narrow road between opposing parties. Basically, it just looks like leaving love in your wake. So how can I rule the way God would in my real life? Easy. Just take one opportunity this week to show God's way of doing things. This could be in a relationship or on social media or what you do with a free moment. God stationed us you and me, here on this earth to image his way of reigning and ruling, to mirror to this world God's way of doing things. It means you have a mission beyond being nice and waiting around until heaven, right? It means that you get to be a little glimpse of heaven here on earth to those around you. This is what it means to carry the image of God. Now, on that point, just as an aside, do you ever think about why you want to go to heaven? See, heaven is only good because God is in charge there. He rules there because his will is fully realized there. It, it's not about the mansions and the gold, right? We have those here and they don't fix anything. No, in fact, the reason I want to be in heaven is because God rules fully there. God does his will his way. In fact, they pave the streets with gold in heaven because it's so worthless in comparison to what the reality is when God is in charge. The thing that makes heaven desirable is because it is the place that perfectly reflects God's rule. So if you want people to join you in eternity with him, show them what it looks like when God is in charge, starting with your own life, then your family, then your neighborhood. This is what God intends by placing his image on you and me. And this all leads to the final point. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. See, we have a mandate from God. Now, mandate is a big word. Basically, it means a command from God, but it's, it's also a blessing. Basically, it's a commissioning. That a mandate is a call to a mission. What is the first thing that God told humans to do? 
What was the first commandment to humans in the Bible? Not to be nice, not to stay away from lying, not even to go to church or worship him. No, the first commandment from God to people is to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, in this first part of his mandate, God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, when we think about being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, it's easy to reduce that to just having children. Now, while that's certainly a part of it, it is by no means the whole of it. To be fruitful and multiply means to take the raw materials around you and arrange them in such a way that they become fruitful and beautiful, right? What fruit grows out of you? What are you multiplying? The point here is that to fill the earth, we, we need to fill it with God's character and his will. In other words, again, it's, it's doing God's will God's way, like we were just talking about. It is the culture of the garden and of Jesus. And that culture is meant to burst forth and fill the earth. Now, in the second part of his mandate to us, God tells us to subdue the earth. Now, subdue to, is to bring in under control, right? To bring to order. There's raw potential all around us waiting to be brought under control. Think about it like this. Someone who makes guitars is harnessing the raw potential of wood and nylon and rearranging them in such a way that the instrument can be held and strummed and used to fill the world with music. Someone who stays at home with their kids is harnessing the exuberance and energy of a child and arranging the day in such a way that the child can grow to maturity, to love God and love themselves and others. This is how we subdue. This is how we make things fruitful and beautiful. And isn't this just such an honor? Are you starting to see what God is up to and how we participate with him? We're not meant to be aimless or directionless. We are blessed by God to partner with him in fulfilling this mandate. So how do I take part in this? Well, I am fruitful when I multiply God's goodness in my decisions and my interactions. All you have to do is look around with your eyes open. What raw material is waiting for you to rearrange? What potential is floating around you waiting to be brought into alignment with God and his will? The possibilities are endless. And you are blessed and empowered by God himself to carry out this mandate wherever you find yourself. See, we weren't over-exaggerating about the first chapter of the Bible. What it tells us about God, about this world, and about us is so extremely important for how we should live today. Make sure to spend this next week reading through Genesis 2. The second chapter in this incredible story, read slowly and carefully, be intrigued with what you find, and ask God to point out what he wants you to see. But for now, take some time to process and discuss these things we've just shared, holding closely to the words of this first chapter. I have no doubt God has something he wants to teach you. So take the time now to listen, to think, to scour over this chapter one more time and talk through what you're processing. Have a great rest of your session. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. 
And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.